0: episode 80 80. of killer hangover my name is beth and
1: i'm bettina oh my gosh
0: (laughs) i just i i can't believe this is episode 80
1: i can't either I mean, Really, I don't even
0: know where my mind is gonna like explode when it's episode a hundred. <laughs> hundred. Like,
1: I was just thinking the same thing. Oh my gosh, we're gonna have to have <laughs> confetti and noisemakers, and we're gonna have to do something, and we will not be recording virtually.
0: We will have to make that mandatory no, together. together. Yes. Yep. Oh my gosh! Hi guys, it's episode eighty. Woo woo woo! <laughs> this week, Mom and I are covering something. I was going to say fun, but that is definitely not the word we want to use. No, 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 definitely not. But it is something different. We're covering something together Mm -hmm. and like we do every 10th episode, something different. And I think it's going to keep you guys intrigued. So before we make that drum roll announcement of what we're sharing with you all, mom has a cocktail.
1: When I look to see what alcohol came from this certain region it was a rum so I thought where's Alex (laughs) rum drink but I already did the coke and rum so we're gonna do something a little different and this kind of blew my mind okay so I like gin and tonics a lot I was so excited to find this is a rum and tonic and I guess I never thought Weird. of that. I know. I used to drink vodka tonics. That makes sense. Gin yeah. tonics. That makes sense. Why not white rum and tonic? So I quickly ran down and I made myself a drink so I could once again do my solo drinking. <laughs> All right. So virtual cheers to you, darling. Cheers to you, mom. Cheers to episode 80. All right. Oh my How's gosh. The drink? It is so good you you hardly taste the rum it's so refreshing so it's just some ice two ounces of white rum five ounces of tonic water and then a lemon wedge which (laughs) come on I didn't have that (laughs) guys this is episode 80 we don't garnish it's very
0: rare that we do episode 100 we'll make sure we do how about that (laughs) okay
1: if we're not having champagne (laughs) so of course wait of course what am I thinking (laughs) so the lemon wheel is or wedge is just to garnish it you know and probably give it a little taste but this is excellent it's really good so rum and tonic cheers yum cheers
0: okay well shall we dive in mom we shall okay you mom you actually might not know this i don't know but i am obsessed with Colts. And just like you talked about with that Manson, like you've kind of always been kind of intrigued by that too. I think Mm -hmm. that's what ties me to that as well. Like I am obsessed with cults. It's just a really fascinating topic for me. And maybe you all will disagree, but a lot of them, especially the one that we're going to chat about today, it starts out with this idea and this mission that I actually like agree with, which is kind of scary. and. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say that out loud, but do you know what I mean? Like you, you, how, when it starts out, you kind of, you you agree with their mission and and the ideas that they're
1: bringing. Or they have ideals. Yeah. I mean, these, these great ideas of what their, their mission is all about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like the
0: mission of everyone being, everyone being loved by God, no matter their race, their economic status, their political views. All people coming together as a community to work together, to care for one another. I mean, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It sounds like the ideal. Yes. Now, throw in the time period of the Vietnam War and race riots, the unknown of a potential nuclear bomb, all of these terrible things. That mission statement of all people being taken care of has a bit of a safeness tied to it now, doesn't it? Mm hmm. This is the good that lured people into the People's Temple. And once you were in, the evilness held you trapped and controlled.
1: Oh, no, no.
0: Yes. For episode 80, we are talking all things the People's Temple, Jonestown, and the infamous Jim Jones. Jim
1: Jones.
0: This may be one of my most favorite episodes yet just because the research into it was so interesting. And I'm really, really happy that you let me be the one to research Jim Jones because I didn't know a lot about him. So that was really fun for me to just check it all out, like the background where it all started
1: and came from. Yeah. He's quite the interesting character. Yes, he is. And I had Jonestown and Course, most everybody's heard about Jonestown, but I'll tell you what, I discovered a lot of things I had no idea about. So that was fascinating to me, also. Yeah. I have to add here that so I just took a trip and I was starting to do my research on the plane. So here I am. Thank goodness I had a window seat because here I am blubbering (laughs) while I was doing this research. (laughs) oh my gosh I can't tell you how many
0: times I'd sit I was sitting on the couch with my headphones on and watching something and Aiden
1: would come up to me like mom are you okay (laughs) yeah yeah oh my gosh it was interesting but tough very tough very tough so my dear take it away
0: well the oddness of Jim Jones really started back with his childhood he had quite the bizarre childhood he was born to Lanetta and James Thurman Jones in May 1931 in the heart of the Great Depression. So, a, a little about his parents. Lanetta was super strong willed. She was a dreamer and a hard worker. She attended agricultural and business colleges, planning to open her own business one day. And back then in the 1920s, this was totally out of the norm That's a for big women. Deal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And
0: that didn't face her that she was a woman, she was really driven. In 1925, her mother died and she ended up settling. I really don't know how she got from point A to point B. I don't understand how she got there, but she ended up just getting married and starting a family. Like, it's just like everything got tossed out the window. Yeah, I don't know. Just her mom died and then all of a sudden she just got married. And there's nothing wrong with getting married and being (laughs) ambitious. But for some reason, she just that's what she chose. That's the she's headed down a different path. And she headed, uh, she headed, yeah, she did. And she headed towards and got married to James Thurman Jones. And then there was World War I with all the terrible gases, which ended up sending him back to the United States, unable to really work because of his disabilities. So oh, now no. he's living on disability checks and she's kind of doing the whole farm thing.
1: By herself, wow.
0: In a small town in Indiana, just by herself. Then they have a baby, James Warren Jones, Jim Jones. And like I said, this was during the Great Depression. And the farm thing is not really working out because a lot of farms back then didn't work out. They're living on the Mm -hmm. government checks from the father Jim's disability checks. And they end up moving to a smaller town in Lynn, Indiana, into a very small house with a dirt yard next to the railroad tracks. Lynetta worked in local factories And James, well, he worked at odd jobs with custodial work and on his addiction of gambling and alcohol. Basically, to sum up James' childhood in one of his tapes, he claims that one of his earliest memories of his childhood was of his father lying on the ground sobbing helplessly drunk and his mother standing over him berating and yelling at him for his addictions. Oh, jeez. With Lynetta off working and James in and out of the house, Jim Jones was alone. Always alone. The boy taught himself to walk by leaning against the red wagon in his front yard. No one to guide him. When he
1: was a little one? Yep. Just a little guy?
0: Yeah. No one to guide him. No one to care for him. He was known around town as the dirty, wild kid, usually naked and always covered in dirt. He loved to run around town and collect animals. Lynetta was a big animal lover, so she let him collect these animals in her backyard. Chickens, goats, cats, snakes, dogs. They were all back there. And actually, by the age of five, the local gang of wild dogs had really taken to him and would follow him around. (laughs) So much so that it made it really hard for his parents to ever discipline him when the dogs were around. Oh, my gosh. They protected him. Yeah, and I'm, like, picturing Mowgli and, like, the wolves. (laughs) Like, in Jungle Book. This poor kid. With James and his addictions and Lynetta being unlike any other mother, she was very outspoken, spoke a lot about politics, smoked cigarettes, worked in the factories. Like I said, Jim Jones was alone a lot. Quote, I was ready to kill by the end of the third grade. I mean, I was so aggressive and hostile. Nobody gave me any love... Any understanding. In those days, a parent was supposed to go with a child to school functions. There was some kind of performance, and everyone's parents were there except mine. I'm standing there, alone, always alone. Unquote. In school, he didn't have a lot of friends. But out of school, when all the children were out and about, Jim Jones studied them. He learned about them. And Jim Jones' social manipulation began. He started leading the boys of the neighborhood into his barn and preaching to them. what? Now I'm talking six, seven, eight years old, and he would lead animal funerals.
1: Oh jeez.
0: And like these funeral services, he would torture the animals as well as perform these services. Mm, nice. And the attention he received was immaculate to him. He started dressing in these long robes) <laughs> My I know. Quoting Bible scriptures and preaching. <laughs> he decorated the barn with candles. And in the summer, he would have lemonade in there to lure them, the children sure. in, the other boys in. And in the winter, he offered them warmth. So with this lemonade and warmth, he, he got it got him hours upon hours of an audience.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: The curiosities of it all kept the boys coming, like Don Foreman, who I guess you could kind of consider Jim's first best friend. He was very loyal to Jim, even when Jim locked him in the barn's attic for no reason at all, except to just test his will. Hmm. A neighbor, Myrtle Kennedy, noticed the odd boy in the long robes and kind of (laughs)
1: she wasn't the only one who noticed.
0: (laughs) Oh, believe me. And she kind of became the surrogate mother to Jim. She started bringing him to church, although he did not really like the Nazarene church. He liked the community it was building. He really did appreciate that. It opened his eyes to kind of, I guess you could call it a tasting tour, if you want to call it that, for all the local churches. He started going to all the local churches to kind of see where he fit in because he liked that community aspect, but he wanted to find where he fit.
1: So this little guy, he's like, what, eight or nine now, dressed in these robes, every Sunday is visiting churches.
0: He's like nine or ten, yeah, and he's checking out these churches And the one that struck his fancy was the Pentecostal congregation outside of town in the countryside. They're more, they're really influenced by the evangelicals. Mm -hmm. So uh, they were very animated. There's a lot of crying and dancing and yelling. And uh, he was hooked. He was very impressed. Along with this obsession came his obsession with socialism and communist ideas. Through high school, he lived in the library, studying Marxist ideas, Lenin, Gandhi, and even Hitler. With everything he was gathering from his studies and from the experiences in the church, he would hitch rides out to the bigger town of Richmond, Indiana, and stand on street corners and preach there.
1: No way.
0: Social justices. He's probably like 14, and he would just preach about social justice. Injustice and and just God and and Bible verses. I mean, yeah, he was just. It started so young.
1: Doesn't that blow your mind? It does. It really, honestly does. Well, he must not have been a dumb kid at all. I mean, I I, I no, I, I mean, no. He pretty much taught himself all this.
0: He's a, a master manipulator. I don't think he's dumb by any means. Mm. When Jim was fifteen, Lynetta divorced James and moved herself. And Jim out to Richmond. Remember Don Foreman, his best friend out there in Lynn? Mm-hmm. On the evening of their last dinner together out at Jim's house, Jim did not know how to handle his goodbye to his friend. He really didn't want to say goodbye. So he did the only thing natural to him, I guess, and pulled a gun out on Don. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's the first thing that came to my mind. Shooting oh, the gun off
0: in the house. Why? I don't know. But this didn't even scare Don off. So, wow. but keep this all in mind is that's how manipulative this guy was because as we tell this whole story and we get to Jonestown and the terrible terrible things he was doing to his parishioners and his congregation, they all stuck around too. There there was just I'm not victim blaming. I'm just saying Don stuck around even after that. So much so that he would regularly come to Richmond and started working with Jim at the local nursing home and hospital. Wow. Throughout high school. Yeah. And even though he showed his loyalty to Jim, terrible things and the terrible treatment kept happening. He was forced to stay in a small room of the crematorium. So Jim forced Don to stay in the small room of the crematorium while body limbs burnt until the limbs were ash. Oh, my gosh. And then Don tells this story in a documentary I watched called Jim Jones Mastermind American Cult Leader. It was on YouTube. He told a story about how they were in the nursing home and they were in an old man's room together. The old man was in very poor shape and Jim commanded Don to dry shave the old man. Don prepares the shave, starts to lather him up, and Jim shouts, No, not like that, like this, and proceeds to take the razor to the man's dry face. (gasps) Tears falling from the old man's eyes in pain as Jim dragged the razor down his cheek. Oh, my gosh. Don left and never returned to be by Jim's side a week after that. he was So just... it took
1: him seeing Jim hurt somebody else. Yes. Oh, my goodness.
0: It's such a mind game. Other workers in the hospital, though, never saw that side of Jim. They saw a caring boy, a young man in high school who was coming to work in the nursing home. He was staying up late with patients, and he did all this extra work to help and he preached Bible verses. I mean, they're just seeing this great guy. One of those workers was Marceline Baldwin. She was four years older than him, but very much attracted to his drive in the hospital as he attended classes at the local Indiana College. He'd actually graduated early from high school at 17 with honors, and a year after that, he and Marceline were married. Hmm. It wasn't long before the verbal and mental abuse started. So, Marceline came from an upper middle class family. He believed her to be very naive to the world and would criticize her love of religion. She didn't understand this criticism because he's constantly studying religion and preaching about religion. And he actually ends up dropping out of college. So he's only supporting the couple by that little job at the nursing home and in his free time he's studying religion and his obsession held strong with all the communist and socialist leaders so he's just still studying these ideals of these people in history books and he's studying religion but he knows all like don't mess yeah, with him he, he knows it all then in 1952 Marceline discovered a new church the Methodist Church Their mission statement claimed that they focused on the impoverished, the freedom of speech, prison reform, and the right of racial groups. All things that Jim had claimed he believed in. She was really excited to share this find with her husband. All his beliefs and her religion all wrapped in one. It wasn't long before Jim registered with the Methodist ministry. He worked in a poorer section of Indianapolis in the Somerset Methodist Church by day, and at night he stayed up studying and planning his next move to own his own church one day.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Fun little side note he wasn't making much money in this gig, and he would actually sell exotic monkeys on the side to make money.
1: Oh no. And he Jeez. had a little
0: monkey of his own that like he trained to do all these crazy things. She did. Bizarre. Bizarre. Anyway, soon his evangelical style teachings were getting attention. The Methodist church didn't like it so much, <laughs> but the local Pentecostal convention did and called him on stage to preach. No kidding. His first time up there, he was a natural. The whole convention was under his charm. Even Marceline was just like, this is crazy. That's my husband. They claimed he was a raising prophet. No kidding. Other local churches called him to preach after that. He found a calling to be a faith healer. Mm. Um, honestly, it's more like making magic tricks on stage. He mm-hmm. would call somebody up to the stage and say, are you sick? And they say, yeah, I have cancer. And he'd pull this bloody looking mass out somehow and claim they're cured. And even though these people obviously still remain sick, they wanted to believe. This is just the beginning of the falsities of Jim Jones. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he was able to purchase his own church in Indianapolis. He hired on other boisterous ministers of all races. The first people's temple opened in 1957. Even Marceline was impressed with how Jim could preach and and just keep the attention of the crowd like he did. He opened a soup kitchen and a nursing home. This not only looked good for the church and helped with their mission of helping all people, Mm -hmm. but it also became a place of recruitment for Jones. Oh. To live his mission to the fullest, Jones also started what he called his rainbow family, adopting children from Korea as well as a little black boy. It was actually the very first black boy adopted by a white family. In the U.S.? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And and he named the little boy um, Jim Jones Jr. And they adopted him around the same time that Marceline gave birth to their only biological son. And he kind of told everybody that he was raising them as twins. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so he also wasn't involved really at home. Kind of like got all these kids and then had this great visual of this is my rainbow family,
1: but really wasn't involved. Well, he didn't have a very good father figure to learn from either.
0: No, this manipulation all gave to the power of control. The man was a total control freak. If someone would disagree or start to act against his temple... I mean, even if Marceline disagreed with him in any way, shape or form, taking the trash out, whatever, he would fall to the ground, clutching his chest. <laughs> he claimed he had some direct link to God and their choices and actions were affecting him. Oh, good grief. OK. I'm just picturing my five year old throwing a temper tantrum.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It just
0: seems so ridiculous to me. He had the secretary that worked as a spy. And she would go around and kind of like talk to the congregation and get to know people and all the parishioners and everything. And he would play on his congregation's fears and call them out on things that he wouldn't have known. But
1: it was the spy who was bringing it all back to him. So they're thinking that he is he really knows this. stuff, Right.
0: He would give prophecies of doom to those that went against his temple. And they'd be like, how do you how do you know that I did that? But she was like. And she had multiple spies. I just know for sure that his secretary was one that, like, did a lot of this spying. And, guys, this is just within the first couple of years of the People's Temple. This isn't, like, down the road this started happening. This is, like, right away. As you know, things get much, much worse. Mm -hmm. And his ego was at the helm of this craziness. In 1965, the People's Temple moved to California. He claimed their mission was being threatened in Indianapolis. I don't know how factual that is, but he claimed for their safety they were to move to this new promised land in the Redwood Valley. And he convinced his core followers of over 150 to join him. Most claim that he chose this area because it was listed in Esquire magazine (laughs) as one of the nine places in the United States that would be safe if there was to be a nuclear bomb. I think his socialist ideals were starting to become more and more apocalyptic. Right. The end I'll be y'all. His faith healings continued, but these started getting more dramatic. He would hire people on Mm -hmm. as actors in the middle of these services. Like he, this woman would come up in a wheelchair and claim that she had some spine condition and she hadn't walked in years. So in the middle of this huge service, he's commanding her to stand. She does. He commands her to walk, and she does. And by the end, the woman is dancing around the congregation. Yes, <laughs> she is.
1: And everybody is just arms flailing. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I've really been to one of these before when I was what? In Ger- Not Jim Jones, but... Um... Oh, my God, I was... <laughs> yeah, I didn't tell you, but... Uh... <laughs> No, this was in Germany, and the guy's name was Bruder Popov, and he was exactly the same same way, and he would travel to these places and put up like a circus tent, a big circus tent, and people would flock to see him, and my grandmother was, we were staying with her, and she was like, come on, I want to see what this is all about. So we went. Oh my gosh. It was, and I was only, geez, I was young. I was probably 11 maybe, and it bothered me so much, these these healing things. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that people can't heal. I'm not saying that I I totally believe in the power of prayer. But you could just tell. And I just remember this little boy in a wheelchair. And he kept saying, you know, and everybody was doing what you were just saying, all the raising of hands and you know, all this stuff. The tent was going wild. And this boy could not walk. He could not walk. And this guy kept taking him out of the chair and making him walk and and the kid could oh oh. it was so heart-wrenching me at 11 started crying and I left the tent and I told my my grandmother I'll never go back to anything like that again it was horrible it was horrible and you could tell some people were actors you know he'd pick people in the crowd you know they weren't around him you know, just like Jim Jones did, they'd pick somebody Ugh. in the back or something and say, "Is there anybody here that's having heart palpitations all the time?" And of course, this person, "Oh, I have." <laughs> you know, Jeez. it's the same thing as Jim Jones did. It was just, yeah, it's it. I just don't get it, but
0: and and you know, but these congregations are huge. I mean, people do find I, I don't know something in these services and so i can't tell you that these
1: services are wrong by any means but it's just they're not wrong and he actually i mean supposedly people were actually healed but i think that's the power of suggestion also
0: sure and at the end of the day though these preachers well i can't say this for your guy but jim jones it was all about jim jones though like it wasn't about the healing anymore it wasn't about so even if You know, maybe people did walk away from that service really, their hearts felt healed or they felt guided by something from that service. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody took what his preachings, as I get to, they kind of just become rants. And, but people were still walking away with different things from these services.
1: Right. No, exactly. Yeah.
0: And so goodness was coming to people. I don't know how, but goodness was coming to people from these services. But it's just, I don't know, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. It's just different. Just totally different.
1: Um, I read somewhere that deep down he was actually an atheist. Did you read that anywhere?
0: His mother was an atheist. So I didn't read he was an atheist, but his services really changed over time from preaching about God and preaching about God's lessons to preaching that God is an ideal in you. Mm. They started to change over time. like. And I'll I'll get to it for sure, because I can see why people would say he was an atheist. He claimed he needed vitamin drops, but obviously these were amphetamines and painkillers. <laughs> the preaching slowly started to become ranting, like I just said. Oh, look, that was the next note. And the talk of God slowly became less and less. Oh, my gosh, that was my next note. <laughs> You're right on it. He really started preaching about social justice. Quote, if you see me as your friend, I'm your friend. If you see me as your father, I'm your father. If you see me as your God, I'm your God. Aye, aye, aye. Doesn't it send okay. shivers down your spine? Like it just. Yeah. And like I said, people take away from that what they wish. Mm-hmm. They see him as this mighty preacher and they take that. Maybe somebody takes that away as like I'm finding a community here or somebody takes it away. I don't have family. This is my family now. Everybody can take away from
1: that. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. As they And I, I think that was the big thing is people felt like they belonged to something.
0: Right. And as you see from his growing up, he didn't, didn't have, have love that. in his household. Mm-hmm. He didn't have that. And so. So he really craved to, it now. Yeah. And he's trying to emulate what he believes that is maybe. Family and, is. Right. Yeah. And to him, it looks like control. It looks like absolute manipulation and control. Now, being in California, he acquired these Greyhound buses and they would go on these bus tours where he would lead them to places like San Francisco and he would preach the temple's, quote, safe place. Now, this is the end of the summer of love. The Vietnam War, the race riots, the doom of the unknown loomed over many. And here was this guy preaching social justice and peace. Like I said, a safe place, quote, come and I'll give you a home. Come and I'll give you a bed. Come and I'll give you comfort, Unquote. Luring them in with all these good things, and then mm-hmm. they'd be trapped. He would have his followers sign these blank pieces of paper, papers in which anything could be printed on them. Then he would print on them that the person who signed it was a racist, or what? that the person had psychological problems, or they were parents who had molested their own children. And lo and behold, there's their signature. And now he has blackmail on them. Oh, my gosh. He claimed them, Mom. He tore families apart. And maybe one day when I feel safe enough to, I'll cover Scientology. But I'm a little (laughs) afraid of them. (laughs) Maybe I won't.
1: But that's another
0: thing that if you're not in Scientology, you are not allowed to talk to anybody outside Scientology. If that even if it's your mother, your brother, your son, your daughter, it doesn't not matter. Tom Cruise doesn't talk to his daughter because she's not a Scientologist. Never saw her grow up. Please don't come after me, Tom Cruise. I'm not <laughs> attacking you. But this is this is kind of Jim Jones. He tore families apart. He brainwashed a lot of these people into this or blackmailed them. It's like Dawn when they were little. It, he yeah. trapped them. Now and keep in mind, no one joins a cult. They join things like a religious organization. That's what these people think that they're joining. Something good. Mm -hmm. Even when in the middle of a congregation, Jim Jones would call upon someone who wronged him and his temple and would then beat them.
1: In front of everyone. Yes.
0: The congregation would join in and shout and praise the beatings.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: They thought it was for the good of all. There's this terrible audio. One of the times I was crying and Aiden made sure I was okay. It was a beating done by two boys. I'm not exactly sure what they had done. But Jim Jones is literally laughing during the beating. Snickering and giggling and laughing. One was a black boy and one was a white boy. And he makes note of this. Sticking there together boys. Sticking there together. And he just keeps laughing and laughing. And he goes, oh, we lost the white one. Now we have one black and one blue.
1: Oh, my gosh. Ugh.
0: It's horrifying. He also used sex as a form of dominance. Mm-hmm. It's a total control thing, mind and body. He would even preach about sex to his congregation, children all there, everything, claiming he would have sex with men and women, not because he enjoyed it or
1: wanted it, but because it was a manifestation of his power now did you read also that he was the only heterosexual in the world and all other men were homosexuals oh yeah oh absolutely and that I actually read that's the reason they left in uh, Indiana is because he was caught in the bathroom having sex with a man there was
0: a lot of rumor of why they and ended up leaving Indiana oh. I think that he was too radical for indianapolis Mm. indiana that whole area i think he was way too radical for he was almost too
1: radical for the west coast too
0: mom he was too radical in general (laughs) let's just (laughs) i mean the man at the pulpit was preaching about this whole sex thing and he was like i've had sex with a man i've had sex with a woman who made my skin crawl but i had to do it (laughs) and i'm just like And they're showing the congregation and there's like a six-year-old listening, maybe a 10-year-old. And you're just like, what is happening?
1: I don't know what's happening. No.
0: (sighs) So you have the beatings, the ranting, the control aspect of it all. But you go along with it. You go along with it because you don't want any of this to happen to you. And this greater mission of all the same, all equal, all a community looms overhead. So you have that greater ideal that it, like we started the episode with, that that it all started with, but I don't know. And this cause, this will to follow this cause of socialism would be tested in other ways, like in the way of a mass suicide. One day in a service, cups of juice were passed around in a ritual to mimic Holy Communion. After they drank the juice, Jones told them, you have all just been poisoned and have about an hour to live. There was total silence in the temple and Jones starts to laugh. And you all just passed the test. You are truly here for the cause. Yeah. WTF. <laughs> I would have walked out that door and been like, I'm not going back. Like, what well, that was too I much don't think for me. You yeah, I, think you, I don't think you would have been there to begin with. But even if I would have, I, I... over time, these tests of their will were called into question by those living around the community. And those that had gotten out of the temple were finally seeing the light. Mm -hmm. It's crazy to say, but they're seeing the light and how dark the people's temple truly was. Right. That aspect of community and social justice was overshadowed by this man's controlling egotistical ways. So many people started to talk against the people's temple An article was printed in the New West magazine exposing Jim Jones for the sex-addicted drug abuser he truly was. His facade was totally falling apart. I don't know if there were rumors, but it was also said that the FBI and the CIA were starting to look into the organization as a cult. And you'd think, aha, they've got him. But unfortunately, Jim Jones was ahead of it all. Before the article, before all the bad talk, he had already made his move in preaching a utopia he had already purchased land out of the country and had a plan in place. The people's temple must go to Guyana to continue their social justice work, to save their community from the wrongdoers and traitors and capitalism that was overtaking America.
1: Yep. Remember, there's going to be a big explosion or whatever, too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the apocalypse is coming, and they were all going to be saved if they were with him.
0: Yes. Take it away,
1: Mom, what happened in Guyana. (sighs) Okay, first of all, let me kind of tell you what Guyana is a little like so that you can picture it. So it's a country in South America. Its capital is Georgetown. You will hear me refer to Georgetown a few times. To the north of the small country is the Atlantic Ocean. Brazil is to the south, Venezuela to the west, and Suriname to the east. It has a tropical climate and is generally hot and humid. Very much so. It's one of the world's most sparsely populated countries, Hmm. but it is home to more than 900 species of birds, 225 species of mammals, 880 species of reptiles, and more than 6,500 species of plants. All of this natural wildlife and plant life is probably due to the fact that Guyana is one of the largest unspoiled rainforest in South America. I did so not some know parts that. of it are totally inaccessible to humans. So how did he even
0: know about this though? Like how did he look at a map? It just I... reminds me of that Pendulum Lady who s- just swung a pendulum and said, oh, "We're moving there." <laughs> like I just
1: I don't get it. Well, I I think he looked at it and saw all those things. It was very sparsely populated, so he wouldn't have to I know to they had a people. very socialist uh, president at the time, too. Oh, and that probably added to it. But in 1974, Jim Jones sent 35 to 50 People's Temple members, mostly young men, to rent about 3,800 acres of jungle property in Guyana. One stipulation from the government of the lease was that one-fifth of the land be cleared for cultivation. By 1977, there were 60 cottages, large kitchens, and food storage areas, laundry rooms, an infirmary, two schoolhouses, as well as the open-air pavilion that was built for meetings, which we've all seen. Yeah. Yeah. So Jim Jones and his 900 or so followers arrived at the Jonestown settlement in 18, oh, in 1877. There you go with your damn dates again, Mom. <laughs> in <laughs> August 1977. And I'm assuming that they drove the buses down there. because those, just... those Greyhound buses? Yeah. I think so. I think they did too. He had a whole fleet of them. Yeah, and I kind of saw a video of them getting in the buses and leaving. Uh, One video that I did watch that was very informative was the Jonestown Massacre Paradise Lost Mm -hmm. uh, by Real Stories on YouTube. It was really good. Anyway, the camp had been well run for and by the original 50 members but now there are almost a thousand people there and that yeah. strained the housing as well as the resources of the camp
0: well and he was sending home videos from the camp because he would go too, and he was sending these home videos of like look at all of our bananas and there's stickers on the bananas that he had purchased <laughs> and he was like oh we're having so much fun and he'd show like dancing and he'd show all this and he was even claiming it wasn't that hot and then all of a sudden these people show up and there's like very little food like you just said it's freaking hot you're in the freaking jungle like the land is actually
1: actually very dry and it was very hard to grow anything it was not an agricultural type of ground at all but again with
0: his lovely
1: lies So now you've got all these people there in a remote area. Jim Jones has all the power and is not being watched or constrained by laws or rules other than his own. Oh my gosh. And those are totally wackadoodle. And I really (sighs) like that word because it really pertains to this. Yes, it does. First of all, he took all the members medication. And with those, he kind of kept himself pretty drugged up. Uh, like I guess he had started taking the drugs when he they were in the United States. Mm-hmm. But he really amped that up. There were public punishments and humiliations, as you yeah. said, as well as private sexual advances. Weirdly, Jones made it clear that, like I said, except for himself, all men were homosexuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that whole thing just really didn't make sense to me. Families were the That whole
0: up- thing, Mom? <laughs> None of this made sense to me. <laughs> were
1: broken apart, and everyone in the camp was told to inform on one another. Yes, even family members. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times the children were taken away from their parents, and they were kept in a different section of the camp, and the parents were allowed to see them maybe one hour a day. Mm. Hard physical labor was expected of every abled body, and we're talking 10 to 12 hours of work hard, hard labor, six days a week. Member meetings would be at night after dinner. So okay, you don't have much to eat. You wake up in the morning, you don't have much to eat. You work for 10 to 12 hours in this heat. You're not drinking very much. And then you go to dinner and you have very little to eat. I think a lot of dinners consisted of rice. Then after dinner, you sat in this pavilion Hotter than heck because you've got 900 people sitting in there and you listened to Jim Jones ramble.
0: But here's the thing, Mom, that sounds absolutely miserable. But a lot of people there saw this work as building their future.
1: Their utopia.
0: Yeah. And as as bizarre as that sounds to us on the outside with that hindsight of all of it, this was them. They felt proud of them. A lot of people felt very proud of themselves for putting in those 12 hours. Yeah, to... but after a while, that kind of wears on
1: a human body. I'm not saying they all did. I'm not saying they all loved it. So, frequently, there were also drills, which mm-hmm. Jones called white nights. Members would be woken up in the very early hours of the morning and sleepily stand in the pavilion listening to Jones rant about conspirators in the government, the media, and outside relatives, all wanting to destroy their community. Of course, these were spurred on by his drug use and would last for hours. So like I said, he used uppers and downers. So he'd take an upper and he would be totally zinging. And these poor people had just gone to sleep after all these hours of, of working. And then he'd wake them up with this ranting and they'd have to stand there and listen to it. Jones also controlled all information going out as well as coming in. Letters were screened. Telephone calls were restricted or scripted. There were no radios, no TVs, Mm. no newspapers. Members had no idea as to what was going on outside of the camp. So anything that Jones said was happening was, of course, believed. So he'd say things like, The KKK is marching and taking over the streets of American cities concentration camps were being set up for blacks and there was was obsessed with concentration camps and there was definitely don't question it definitely going to be a nuclear war very soon Mm. but he would keep the jonestown residents safe armed people's temple guards were an everyday sight on the outskirts of the town supposedly to protect the residents. But in reality, it was a reminder as to what would happen if anyone tried to escape. Tried to escape, yeah. Basically, there was no escape. The residents' loyalty was often tested during their white Night practices or what Jones called their revolutionary suicide. The members drank from... Okay, so he took the communion cups that you had talked about and he t- made vats of flavored water which Jones told them was poisoned and he told them it was poisoned of course when the members woke the next morning they realized that they had just been tested their loyalty had just been tested they were alive it wasn't yeah, poisoned. It,
0: it started so small in the United States and then he gets there and it's like yeah, yeah. and he's like he was obsessed no, with the idea we've
1: got to take this it's poisoned we're gonna take this all together you know so it basically was testing them and getting them ready I guess Back in the U.S., family members were becoming increasingly worried about the relatives in Guyana. They formed the Concerned Relatives Group and repeatedly lobbied authorities to find out what was happening in Jonestown.
0: Can't even imagine.
1: On November 7th, 1978, U.S. Representative Leo Ryan of California formed a congressional delegation to investigate Jonestown. Enter Senator Leo Ryan. I mean, this man was actually... I don't know. He was pretty darn amazing. He did a lot of really so amazing things in his life. This I was, thought so too. It was this was just one of the things. He he was an amazing guy. And I honestly, just looking at him and reading his back, I honestly wish more politicians were like him. I'm <laughs> <laughs>
0: just saying. <laughs> don't get political on me mom don't get me i'm not
1: i'm not but he would totally (laughs) immerse himself in finding out more information for example after the watts riots in 65 he actually lived with a black family and worked in as a sub in the local school so he could more readily understand the conditions that led to the riots
0: yeah and this is in the 70s
1: i mean this is You know, he wanted to know. When prison reform was put on the table, Ryan had himself committed as an inmate to Folsom Prison for 10 days. Now, we've talked about Folsom Prison before. It is a hard-time prison. Yep. He called these fact-finding missions. And so on November fourteenth, 1978, he himself left for Guyana to find out the facts about Jonestown and its residents. He was accompanied by two congressional staff members— nine news people, and several members of the concerned relatives group.
0: Well, think about all the things that you just listed that he did. Those all line up with Jim Jones's original teachings. It was. It was. You know what I mean? And anyway, sorry, I just uh, find that very ironic.
1: So Ryan had written two letters to Jones in early November. He didn't just pop in there. I didn't know that. I thought he had just flown down there. Then no, that's not true. The first was answered by Jones's lawyer, basically saying that Jonestown was private and Ryan could not visit. Ooh, sketchy. The second letter that Ryan sent let Jones know that, <laughs> no, I'm coming to visit. I'm coming, yeah. Jones, paranoid to the hilt by this time because of all the drugs he was taking, demanded that Jonestown get a, quote, facelift before the senator's visit. Buildings were painted, grounds were picked up and residents were told how to reply to questions.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Not only were they told, they were coached, and if they didn't answer the way Jones wanted, they were corrected. Basically, they were actors with scripts that Jones had written. On November 17th, Ryan, his official entourage, and some news people flew into the Port Katuma airstrip, where they were picked up by a dump truck from Jonestown. And they rode in the back of the truck through the jungle on a potholed dirt road for many miles until they came to their destination at nightfall. There, the group was met with happy smiles, laughter, and sunshiny remarks on how happy everybody was in Jonestown.
0: Makes me so sick.
1: They wouldn't want to live anywhere else, certainly not in the U.S. They lived in a community where everyone was accepted, they all had what they needed. Life at Joe's was great, and Jones was like Jesus. He did everything for his followers. He looked after them and guided them. He fed them with food as well as with scripture. He was their source and their light. And honestly, the camp looked clean and well-kept. The residents, although thin, looked well. The children seemed happy and healthy. Really, nothing that Representative Ryan and his group noticed was off or wrong. Until they met Jones. He was definitely off. <laughs> so, you know, in this video thing that I watched, there was reels with Jones answering questions and stuff. And he never answered the questions. They were just in a, He'd go around the answer. You know, he.
0: Mom, I told you, stop talking about politicians.
1: No, this is Jones. I know. <laughs> oh, I get it. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. <clears throat> Go on. He wore sunglasses day and night. His hands shook. I mean, like terribly, and he could barely stand. And this was their leader. Mm-hmm. After the community dinner that night, there was a reception of sorts in the pavilion, dancing and singing, talking and laughter. It was during this time that NBC correspondent Don Harris was passed a note by Vernon Gosney, a Temple member. The note read. Quote, Dear Congressman, Vernon Gossie and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown. Harris passed the note on to Ryan. So I guess uh, Vernon Gosney thought that Harris was Ryan. He wasn't sure. So he mistakenly gave the note to Harris. And as he was passing the note secretly to Harris, it dropped to the ground and a child saw it and started yelling. He's passing a note. He's passing a note. Yeah, because they've been taught to turn turn each other in. in. Mm -hmm. And then Gosney, I guess, reached down, picked up the note and said, Here, I think you dropped this and gave it to Harris. So Harris then passed the note to Ryan. The next morning, the group was shown around the camp. Marceline, Jones's wife, was exceptionally proud of the nursery and the school. I think she truly loved the children. She loved children. Yeah. Yes. That afternoon, they were allowed to interview Jones, who just seemed to ramble on and on about how defectors of the People's Temple were liars and would end up destroying Jonestown. Well, that was fine and good, but there were people who actually wanted to leave the camp, Mm -hmm. and Ryan was taking them with him. The dump truck took the guests and the 16 defectors, including, remember this name, Larry Layton who posed as a defector to the airstrip. Because the number of people flying had grown, a second aircraft was required, and that was arranged by the U.S. Embassy. Oh, gosh. This is what just... Okay. Unfortunately, the arrival of the plane was late, supposed to show up between 4.30 and 4.45, and the group had to wait until 5.10. That Mm. doesn't sound like a whole lot of time. But shoot. But... As the group started boarding the planes, a red tractor pulling a trailer drove onto the airstrip. The men on the trailer jumped off, all having guns and opened fire on the group. So had they actually had that plane actually gotten there, four thirty to four forty five, those gunmen would have missed the group.
0: I know, it's...
1: NBC cameraman Bob Brown started filming as the armed People's Temple members approached and continued filming until he was shot and killed. It kept recording even when he was shot and
0: killed. The camera lay on the ground. It's the scariest. It's very scary. It's
1: eerie. It's so eerie. Five people were killed. Representative Leo Ryan, correspondent Don Harris, photographer Greg Robinson and temple defector Patty Parks and of course Bob Brown nine others were injured including Jackie Spear who was shot 5 times and lay oh on the airstrip gosh. for 20 hours before oh help my arrived gosh the additional plane that the embassy ordered was a Cessna which held 6 passengers one of those passengers was Larry Layton had been ordered to shoot the pilot after the plane took off so basically it was a suicide mission
0: so that's interesting because that's one of the things that jim jones preached back in the united states in california when they started practicing these suicide things he was saying that one way we could all just drink poison or one way was we could all get on a plane and then one of us could shoot the pilot so we all go down Hmm. so that we get our social justice that we're fighting for out in the media Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: Well, that's what this guy was ordered to do. So the plane never got off the ground and his mission went south after fellow passengers saw the gun and wrestled the gun away from him. He injured two people and then was disarmed by another passenger. So Layton was the only person arrested from all of this. Oh, my gosh. He spent 18 months in the Georgetown jail, after which he was tried in Guyana on charges of attempted murder, and was acquitted. (laughs) He was released and went directly into the custody of the U.S. Marshals and escorted to jail in San Francisco. After his trial, he was sentenced to life, and in 2001, he petitioned for parole. It was his last attempt. And in 2002, he was actually released from custody. So he was in custody for 18 years. Okay, back to November 18th. Before leaving for the airstrip, Representative Ryan had stated that the report describing Jonestown would be, quote, in basically good terms. And, quote, I'd say you have a beautiful place here. Even if 14 wanted to leave, 14 out of 900 is a tiny portion of Jonestown. Hmm. So even after hearing those words, Jones stated, quote, all is lost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After the truckload of people left Jonestown for the airstrip, Marceline spoke on the public broadcast system telling everyone to return to their homes. Everything was alright. Just go back. Everything's all right. But everything was not alright because it was at this time that aides were preparing the now well-known drink. Barrels were filled with grape-flavored drink. And may I add here, it was not Kool-Aid. It was not
0: Kool-Aid. It was not
1: Kool-Aid. It was grape-flavored drink. It was flavorade. It was the off brand. It was a flavorade. <laughs> it was the cheap off brand. Yeah. It was the cheap off brand. It was laced with a mixture of drugs. This I didn't know. It was laced with cold medicine, malaria mm. medicine, antipsychotic drugs, and Valium. And to make the concoction complete, cyanide was added. Cyanide, yeah. So I was like, how in the heck did they get that much cyanide? This was, has been my question for I've years. I've always okay?
0: wondered that too.
1: Okay, this is how. Oh boy. He simply said he was a jeweler and, and that gave him access to cyanide because jewelers use it to clean jewelry. What? They do? Yeah, so cyanide was actually sent to the camp because he was a jeweler and he, had, he was cleaning jewelry. Whoa. Half an hour later, Jones called everyone to the pavilion. Jones told the assembled group what had happened at the airstrip and that it simply could not have been avoided. But now, before anyone could be arrested, because, you know, they were all guilty. It wasn't just Jones. They were all guilty. Oh, they were all done for. And their children were all going to be taken away from them. So they had to commit revolutionary suicide. The theory behind the revolutionary suicide was You can go down in history saying you chose your own way to go and it is your commitment to refuse capitalism and in support of socialism. Making a statement, right?
0: I'm just shaking my head.
1: Perhaps some thought this to be another drill to test their loyalty, but then they saw that people were actually dying. Children first. Jones told his followers, encourage them not to be afraid. So his thought process was, if we kill the children... If the children die first, the parents have nothing to live for.
0: Oh, my heart. Oh, my
1: God. That was his thought. Okay, now I'm going to get into a little bit of stuff that might bother you, but it took the children about five minutes to die, infants a little less. So the children, of course, couldn't drink it, but, I mean, the babies, so they squirted the cyanide with um, They didn't have a needle at the end of the syringe But they squirted the concoction into their mouth It took about 20 to 30 minutes for an adult to die 5 to 30 minutes of dying A horrible, horrible death It's very painful Basically, your body is completely deprived of oxygen First, the person's entire body goes into convulsions Then their mouth fills with a mixture of saliva, blood, and vomit And then they pass out, followed by death Now I'm adding this because we've all seen pictures, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want, I don't want to be desensitized. This was horrible, just absolutely horrible.
0: horrible. Oh, the audio! I even just the audio of all of it of just Uh, it. Marceline tried to save the children. You can hear her just begging, Jim Jones. There was also another woman. in this documentary i watched
1: she didn't want to she said no this isn't no we can fight we can we don't have we to can do fight this for the we children
0: let's give them at least yeah. a future and she was kind of cut
1: down actually she was shot up with the stuff she mm-hmm. the syringe she was used you just but, hear
0: the babies crying you hear the begging and you hear
1: so this is what people were watching their family and friends go through knowing that they were next in line According to an eyewitness, after drinking the grape drink, people were escorted away, down a wooden walkway to the outside of the pavilion. Of course, after the cries and screams of the victims could be heard by the members that were yet to drink, the people started becoming reluctant. Jim Jones spouted, Die with dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. And his next words just totally give me the chills. Quote, I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguished cries. Death is a million times preferable to 10 more days of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. Mm -hmm. Most members stood in line waiting their turn, just quietly waiting. Others tried to get away, but the group was surrounded by armed guards. Those who didn't drink were injected with the poison. Oh, so, how about their fearless leader? How about Jones? Oh, this part just makes me so mad. Oh, yeah, he didn't drink it. No, he didn't drink it. He saw what was going on. He didn't drink it. Uh Uh-uh. He died from a shot to the head. But there's no telling whether it was self-inflicted or homicide. Oh, and keep in mind,
0: too, he was stoned off his butt, too. Yeah, he was.
1: Totally. His body was too decomposed to make a clear judgment. Some suspect his personal nurse, Annie Moore, shot Jones at his request. And it's believed that she was actually the last person to die in Jonestown that day. And she did commit suicide, dying from a shot to her head, but with a different gun. And she did leave a suicide note praising Jones. Oh,
0: gosh.
1: So, from the first woman who drank the poison along with her baby to Annie Moore's self-inflicted death, it lasted about four hours. Oh, my gosh. 909 people died that November 18th, 1978. Actually, I read someplace, too. It could have been as high as 918.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, the numbers I read in every documentary and every resource was different. Was ni- they ranged was- from, like, 903 to 918, like... yeah. It was well so, over 900,
1: though. I think 918 was the highest that I read. Among them, it was over, a little over 300 children.
0: Oh, my God.
1: But the deaths didn't end there. And this is the part I didn't know about. Four other members who lived at the Georgetown headquarters died also. Sharon Amos, a member from the very beginning of the People's Temple, slashed the throats of her two young children. <gasps> Then she and her 21-year-old daughter, Lena Harisk, slashed each other's throat. Oh
0: my gosh.
1: 87 members did, however, survive that fateful day for one reason or another. The following are members that were on site. So, 76-year-old Hyacinth Thrush crawled under her bed when White Knight was broadcasted. She just didn't want to deal with it, so she crawled under her bed to hide. Three men, independent of each other, somehow snuck themselves out of the camp. Eleven residents, including four children, led by Richard Clark, they left the morning of November 18th saying they were going on a walk and having a picnic. when well, they were actually fleeing the, the camp. The defectors, the 16 defect, well, 15 plus the. Layton that joined representative Ryan two men who had been sent that morning for supplies and there's also in some resources okay I don't know whether I anyway there was a 78 year old man who was hard of hearing and he actually didn't hear the announcement to come to the pavilion and basically slept through the whole event
0: and nobody went to go grab
1: him I guess not I don't wow. know I, again this is guy. only in- this is only in some resources, not all of them. Yeah. But the first lady I talked about, the 76-year-old, that is actually a fact. She crawled under her bed. She came out the next morning and walked among all the dead.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: 48 members were in Georgetown. Some were based there. Uh, some were there for business and some for medical reasons. And some were there, including Jones's son, for the basketball tournament. And Jones actually demanded for his son to come back and to bring everybody back.
0: Yeah. He like radioed
1: them. Yeah. While they were he in the basketball tournament. And that's how it was. He was at the same place as Sharon Amos was, mm-hmm. the one that killed her children. He was in the same place. And he told his father, no, we're going to, you know, we're here. We're going to do this. Of course, he didn't know what was coming. Then also in the interview with him, he said, you know, my father was so sick. He probably only had a few months to live.
0: Yeah, see, I never heard
1: that. You mentioned that to me earlier when we were chatting. I had never heard that. That makes me even more mad. I know. I know. I mean, he was in bad shape. He was in really bad shape. And finally, there were survivors that that were neither in Jamestown or in Georgetown. Four were on a temple boat in the Caribbean. Don't ask me. And Joyce Perks was in Venezuela purchasing medical supplies. So there were some other members who were lucky to not be there. Okay, so I could end here like many stories of Jonestown do, but there's more to the story, and I want to give credit where credit is due. Guyanese officials were the first to come upon the death scene. They made a fast assessment that there were about 400 bodies, and the U.S. had to come clean up. They didn't want anything to do with Jonestown. In fact, they didn't even want the bodies buried in their country. Oh my gosh. The U.S. military was called, and on November 20th, U.S. soldiers were introduced to a site that they've carried with them for the rest of their lives. Most of us have seen the pictures of the bodies lying around the pavilion. But let me bring you a little closer to the scene, the close-up that these young men and women and the U.S. Army and the Air Force had to deal with. The Air Force was contacted first. This was right after Representative Ryan had been shot and killed. They were to provide medical assistance, retrieve victims and survivors of the congressman's party. The information received from Guyana was scant, and later they would find out the information was wrong. The first problem they encountered was that the airstrip where the dead and injured lay was small, and the C-141 was too large to land there. So they were diverted to the airport in Georgetown, which was about 150 miles away. Then two small airplanes flew to the small airstrip and retrieved the eight wounded that lay there. And that's why it took so long, you know, 20 hours to get to this woman who'd been shot five times. Oh my gosh. A second C-141 was sent to Guyana to carry the dead on the airstrip back to the U.S. While this was going on, the Guyanese Defense Force... GDF, was walking from the airstrip to the camp. This took longer than it should because of the heavy rain and they didn't want to incite more gunfire by bursting into the camp. Makes sense. It was about 48 hours after the murder, or what some people call suicide, at Jonestown that U.S. officials had a new mission. The GDF that had entered the camp reported there were between mm, 300 to 400 bodies. This was way beyond what the Guyanese could handle. More U.S. military was needed. The Guyanese forces were to secure the site and look for survivors, which were thought to be about 450 to 500 people. Okay. Oh, my Because gosh. they knew it was about 900. They thought there'd be survivors. That's just... Ugh. And they thought that they were probably had run into the forest. There, the woods, the jungle, jungle (laughs) there. Of course, once the process of removing the bodies began, it was obvious that there were more than 400. It was often the case where an adult body was removed only to come across one or several bodies underneath. That's gruesome enough. But add that the bodies had been left in the heat and moisture of the jungle. I was just
0: thinking that for days. As well
1: as rain for two days before they were discovered and up to six days before all the bodies were collected. Okay, I'm going to get a little gross, but this is facts, okay? (laughs) I want you to realize that these poor military personnel were were up against. So as the putrefaction of a dead body speeds up, the body breaks down. It becomes bloated, yellowish, and the skin starts to fall off. Because of this process, it was impossible to identify many of the bodies. Also, lifting the bodies into the body bags was a difficult task as they had begun to leak body fluids. I know this is gross, but these guys to me are heroes. The bags had to be transferred from Jonestown to the airstrip, where helicopters waited to transport them to Georgetown. At the Georgetown airport, the bodies in the bags were placed in transfer cases, and then loaded onto the large planes to be taken to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. How many trips did that helicopter have to make? It it was an entire process. So not only did these people have to deal with the horrid task of transferring the bodies, but they were up against the heat and unsanitary conditions. The smell of death was profuse. There were flies everywhere. Water was questionable and not always readily available. Sleeping conditions were terrible, space was limited, and it was hot. I read in one resource that uniforms were actually burnt because there was no way to remove the stench of death. Oh, my gosh. The three helicopters used to transport the bodies had to be fire-hosed out between transfers because the body bags leaked. In fact, it was cited that after the mission, the stench of death was so thick that the aircraft were deemed medically unsafe. Oh, wow. By April 1979, around 300 bodies had been claimed by family members, but 500 remained at Dover Air Force Base unclaimed, and over 200 were too decomposed to be identified. Many families could not afford to have the body of their loved ones transferred across the country, and to make matters worse, no cemetery wanted the many remains buried at their cemetery. Mm. And that's because they didn't want people, you know, coming just for the... I don't know, the viewer, I guess, aspect of it. Finally, Oakland Cemetery in San Francisco agreed to accept the remains. There now lay plaques at the site with the names of all 918 people who died, including Jim Jones. Mm. I know that there's a lot of people that did not agree with him being on that plaque. No. The people that made the plaque wanted these to be a historical reminder and... For that he had to be on it, and
0: so. as I don't want to upset people when I say this, but some of those people did commit suicide because they were true followers of his. Yeah, I mean his well, nurse even wrote a suicide note, still praising him. Others were shot with a syringe. Others
1: were forced to take it. They were murdered. Well, but not all of them. I'm going to have to. I don't. I've always heard the deaths at Jonestown referred to as a. As you said, a mass. I mean, they've often been been referred to as mass suicide. Yeah, it was the biggest mass suicide. But after looking more in depth at the subject, I really concur with the term mass murder, not mass suicide. The most American citizens killed at one place until nine eleven. Yeah, even the people that did willingly take the grape flavored flavorade, they were. (sighs) These people were starving. They hardly had any food. These people were had no had hardly any sleep. They were hot, and there was a lot of intestinal sicknesses going around. I mean, the water source was dirty. Uh, the living resources were dirty, and then Jim Jones had just kind of plied their minds with all this stuff. I, I they were brainwashed. You know, they were, they were, they were in a really bad place. So did they commit suicide? I don't know. I, I, I really think he'd led them to murder. He, he was a murderer. There was a documentary I watched. Um, there's a
0: survivor, Leslie Wagner Wilson, and mm-hmm. she escaped yeah. into the jungle with her, her three year old, three year old son, son, yeah. and a couple other people. Mm-hmm. And They just ran and ran and ran and ran and ran in the jungle. I just can't, I just can't even imagine the fear. Her husband, her son's father, was one of the armed guards for Jonestown. And she said that if he would have run across them, he would have shot them. Yeah. He would have easily not even second guessed shooting her and their son for trying to escape. He
1: was just a true believer in the plight. And it's just, wow. Wow. Can't even wrap your mind around it. Yeah, she was at, her and her son were actually one of the 11 residents that were uh, led by Richard Clark that left the morning of November 18th. They yes, were the ones that said they were the going on a picnic. They're, they're mm-hmm. going to go on a picnic that morning. She was in that group.
0: Yeah, and they had heard the things were kind of going down yeah. south with the yeah. congressmen, so they were like, we're out of here. We're going to... Yeah. I, I mean, I don't blame her either if this is your time. This is where I, I got to try this. I got to try to get out of here.
1: Yeah. For not only me, but my son. My baby. You
0: know? Yeah. She was in the People's Temple since she was 14 or 15 years old with her entire
1: family. Oh, my goodness.
0: I, I just... These storylines, The um, there was another... There was a man in that documentary. His name was Tom, I believe. And he was one of the people that the congressman is going to take back to the United States. And he was on the plane when they heard gunfire. And he pulled up the door on the airplane to save he and his sister. I mean, it's just, it's, the stories are just insane. Just absolutely terrifying.
1: They are. And remember Vernon Gosney, the one who passed the note? Mm -hmm. He actually had a son there. This little boy, he was probably, I don't know, two or three, just a little guy. Okay. And he had to sign a note giving Jim Jones, giving his son over to Jim Jones. And he, a you know, lot of initially did that. That's when so he bizarre. signed, well, they were kind of forced into they it. Were forced and, inici- to. and initially he kind of thought he was doing the right thing. And then when he left with uh, Representative Ryan for the airfield, he left his son, gave him a hug, and left him really thinking that his son was better off there than than this mission that they might not even make. Can you imagine, Mom? I mean... And then he, yeah, he's (sighs) now actually a uh, detective in Hawaii. Oh, wow. Yeah, now that you all are totally depressed...
0: (laughs) We don't even have any uppers for you all. Ghost story uppers.
1: (laughs) Woo, woo, 80. (laughs) It started out so
0: exciting.
1: (laughs) Well, I think it's important that the story be told and be told with a lot of facts. Like I said, we've all seen pictures of it. And even I was desensitized to it just because I I didn't look in depth. And so I think it's important that these stories be told. Well,
0: and then jim jones as a person too you just instantly go to jonestown it's just crazy his upbringing of preaching religion and i mean from such an early age he was very egotistical wanted to get the attention
1: and obviously charismatic also Yeah. Oh very children follow him yeah very much so all righty well let's talk about next week (laughs) (laughs) i have the true crime and i'm going to venture into virginia
0: Yes, and I will be telling
1: some spooky ghost stories. Uh,
0: Actually, I'm super, super, super excited (laughs) for my paranormal story next week.
1: All right. We'll bring you back up, I promise. (laughs) Remember, listeners, we are going to take a two-month hiatus to let Beth get acclimated to having three children. (laughs) Aye, 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 (laughs) aye. baby is coming and so we are going to take september and october off but if you are a patreon you still get episodes how about that deal right we are going to release episodes during september and october just for the patreons so yes We'll also be doing
0: some, I want to do some little like live videos and some little check-ins and just say hey to you guys while we're on our little hiatus for two months. We will be back November 1st. November 1st, yep. We still have a few episodes before then, so don't, we're not signing off quite yet. We still have. No, no. Three more episodes before We we... But join our Patreon, guys. We're going to be checking in with you guys. Five dollar a month. That's it. That's a cup of, uh, that's a latte. And that's going to help me with some (coughs) diapers. So you can join us by the link in the description of this episode. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-R. N.com backslash killer hangover podcast. It's on our, there's a link to it on our website. There's a link to it in the description of this episode. Join us there. Um, last week we announced a special extra episode as well. We send out goodies. It's worth it. It's definitely worth it resources for this episode can be found on our website killerhangoverpodcast.com if you guys want to reach out to us have any requests or anything you can always email us at killerhangoverpodcast@gmail.com. At gmail.com if you're having trouble finding the patreon have any questions just email us you can also find us on our social media we are on facebook and instagram
1: and to remember, leave those reviews, those good reviews, please. It really helps us out. We really appreciate it. It does. It boosts us. So not only mentally, but also boosts <laughs> oh, us up it boosts us mentally. <laughs> Into- <laughs> it boosts our ratings up. So
0: <laughs> Well, guys, I'm sorry about the downer, but hopefully you leave feeling a little uh edumacated on the edumacated. people's temple.
1: Yep. <laughs> All right, sweetheart, virtual cheers. Virtual cheers to you, mama, and episode 80. There you go. Love you, kid.